Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around this planet we call Earth. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor, make sense out of the senseless, and if at all possible, especially this show, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's get to it. Welcome back to the podcast. Glad to have you with me again. Took last week off uh, for a couple of reasons. I've always maintained that the very last thing I'm going to do, because I've been on radio for so many years and had to get on the air every day. You know, when you're doing a regular air shift like noon to three or three to seven or 9 a.m. to noon or whatever it is, you know, you got to fill airtime and it becomes an obligation that is great responsibility to it, in my opinion. I also vowed when I got into this podcasting stuff that I would just not turn the microphone on because it was an obligation. I want to be able to do something that has some value, even if I you know, uh, cut a few corners here and there and take a day off. So that was the first part of it because I, quite frankly, didn't have anything to say. And the second part, which is odd for me, quite frankly, but the second part was I was still not 100% from the COVID bout last time around. Um, physically, I feel much better. My voice obviously sounds a lot better energetically, I'm just still kind of sliding a little bit, just not quite myself. This is actually the first day in a long time I woke up where something didn't hurt. And so that's all good. Uh, one of the offshoots has been for the last month, I guess it's been, that coffee has been like a thing I kind of don't want to drink, even though I've been drinking it for 30 plus years. However, this morning I ground some beans. We're going to see how that goes. As if I need a little caffeine help, we'll see. This episode is different than most of the things that I talk about, you know, whether I'm doing an interview or finding something in the headlines, turn into a lifeline or trying to make some keen observations on life or whatever it may be. This show, this particular episode is um, important to me on a lot of levels. And it is a unique experience that I had around a certain event that happens to be having a tragic anniversary tomorrow. This is a Saturday show. Tomorrow, July 24th, is the 107th anniversary of the sinking of the Eastland in the Chicago River. And the Eastland was one of the really cool ships on the Great Lakes. There were five of them owned by this company. And um, 107 years ago, it went down. And what followed in my life from people I don't have any relationship to, it would seem, you know, in a lineage way, uh, somehow came through in a way about uh, 12 years ago that was one of those, how in the world does this happen to me kind of thing. So first, let me just say this before I get into the Eastland details, which kind of sets this up. When I was 19 years old, I was working part-time at a uh, drugstore and the reason I was working part-time at a drugstore is because I had to work my football scholarship off a little bit because I didn't study the first year. Go figure. And so I took this part-time job and I was doing my thing. And it was on a, a Friday night in January of 1978 when um, I got electrocuted. No way around it. There's this big bailing machine where you throw boxes in and smashes them and you put them out in the uh, parking lot. The bailing machine had a, a wiring problem that they told us about. Uh, the, the stock boys who did all the, the heavy lifting. And 
in order to make the machine work, you had to open up the fuse box and press a button inside instead of the extension button, which is on the outside. And I have no idea what the hell I pushed, but it wasn't a good thing. And so uh, I got uh, I got zapped pretty bad. My heart stopped. I was basically done. Uh, from what I recall, which isn't much of that exact moment, uh, the things that saved me is that I had rubber-soled shoes on. I was standing on concrete. My left hand had somehow grabbed behind me uh, this wall that I was in, uh, like, a, like a wood wall that they had put up, a little barrier, and I grabbed that. But my forehead hit the machine and put a pretty good dent in it and a pretty good burn in the, right in the middle of my forehead. And much of my right hand exploded, basically, and ended up on the wall and other parts unknown. And somehow I was on there for, you know, between like 8 to 12 seconds. It's a long time. It's a freaking eternity to be in that circuitry. And I was able to unconsciously, I guess, on some level, pull myself off. And then that was it. And I woke up with this guy, the pharmacist, actually, a fellow named Mike, a little guy who uh, had been in Vietnam as a medic, had become a pharmacist. And coincidentally, I'm using the coincidentally fingers, but you can't see him, stayed late that night. He never stays late. It was 10 o'clock at night. They close up at 8 o'clock and they're out of there by 9. But he stayed late that night. And... I'm glad he did because he revived me. He got my heart going again and brought me back and, and they'd call the fire department and I'll never forget it. It was uh, truck number 32 was driving right by the drugstore when they got the call. So they came in and got me and it hauled me off to the hospital. And uh, it, what followed was um, a major interruption in my plan. I was 19 years old. I was, you know, as, as the best shape I would ever be in. I was playing football, going to college, had a pretty girlfriend, had some money in the bank, had a car, you know, all the things you're doing when you're 19 years old. And that all shifted in moments. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book called Every Moment Matters, because I get that. That's the first time I checked out. The second time was in 1986 when I was hit by a drunk driver broadside, and that was the second time. But that's for another show. What I'm getting at here is this, I'm convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt, and nobody could convince me otherwise, that something happened to me that night uh, in a rewiring sense. And I, I can't fully explain it. I can just kind of see the edges of it. And you talk to people or research people who've been struck by lightning or had severe electrical injury, something happens to them. And for me, it was like this, this experience of like a heightened sense of awareness of everything. And maybe it was just adrenaline kicking in. I can't really tell you, but you know what? The, the, the following weeks were, were pretty difficult. Uh, the, the doctors wanted to remove, you know, three of my fingers. My dad talked them out of it. Um, dealing with third degree burns and electrical burns, and my heart was racing all over the place, and so it was it was a mess. And <clears throat> interestingly enough, one of the greatest lessons in my life, life lessons basically, uh, came from. A nurse who, <laughs> amazingly enough, was a football manager the year before when I was in high school, or two years before, I should say. She was a year older than me, and she worked at the hospital. And either she knew I was there or just happened to walk past the room and see me there, but she came in, name's Lori, and we you know, what happened? And we're going through this whole thing, and I'm recounting what happened. And by that time, I'd been in there probably about four or five days. And what would happen with the electrical burns is so they don't get any... Um, infection is you have to scrub them and, and clean them up. And when a pretty nurse comes in and does all that, sure, go for it. It hurt like hell, but let them do it. 
And after a while, like, you know, in order for you, you have to do this at some point. Well, I didn't want to do it, quite frankly, because that means I had to look at my hand and I did, really did not want to, to get into all that. There was an actual hole where my thumbnail used to be in my right hand, right through, like somebody shot a laser through it. Third degree burns on my fingers. Uh, they had fused together at one point. The bones were charred. It was pretty, pretty nasty shit. And she came in and we talked a little bit. She put her hand on my shoulder and she said, John, the only way you're going to really begin to heal is if you take ownership of the pain. And then she walked out the door. And to this day, that has applied in so many areas of my life. When there's something going on, when there's a storm in my life, uh, until I take ownership of it, it just stays there and stays there and stays there. So it was a great lesson in the midst of a very difficult time. But this rewiring thing to me was, was profound. And a month later, I was at home and I got this pins and needles feeling over my body on a Friday night. And I turned to look at the clock and it was 10 o'clock at night. Uh, just it had been a month earlier to the, to the day and to the time. And it was just this weird feeling and it's never left me. It comes and goes. Sometimes it hibernates, I call it. Sometimes it comes out full force. And it, it just is almost like I, the, the stuff happens that and I don't know why it happens. And I don't always like when it happens. But there's just this extra gear that kicks in. There's some sort of sensory thing that happens. And it's always been that way ever since I was 19. I wrote this extensively in my book, Phenomenon, which came out a couple years ago. And that was my nudge to take all of these, most of these, not all of them, but most of these unbelievable to most people experiences that I've had, uh, you know, been a part of and put them in a book and talk about them because I think that there's, I don't think, I know there's more going on than the headlines. It's why I'm so adamant about getting to the lifelines because all the shit you see on TV, here on the radio, reading the newspapers, that is a microcosm of what's going on in the world. It is just a very small piece and most of it really negative, which is energetically not good for us all the time. It's good to be informed, but not over the top in my opinion. So that's the setup for, for this particular episode, which has to do with this Eastland disaster. So from the record books, it was Saturday back then, July 24th, 1915, 107 years ago. It was light rain going on here in Chicago. The air was filled with anticipation and excitement. Thousands gathered along the Chicago River for the Western Electric's fifth annual employee picnic. More than 7,000 tickets had been purchased for the day-long festivities, but within just mere moments, the day turned tragic. The Eastland was known as the Speed Queen of the Great Lakes. It was part of a fleet of five excursion boats assigned to take Western Electric employees, families, and friends across Lake Michigan just a short boat ride to Michigan City, Indiana for a day of fun and fellowship. And um, the Eastland was docked at the Clark Street Bridge, but it never left the Chicago River. A tragedy struck as the ship rolled over into the river at the wharf's edge. More than 2,500 passengers and crew members were on board that day. And 844 people lost their lives, including 22 entire families wiped out. So the Eastland had its problems. And this was after the Titanic sank in 1912. And when the Titanic sank in 1912, they made it mandatory where the lifeboats were placed on top deck. And these are not the lifeboats that the, we have today. I mean, these were like boat boats, right? So this ship already has problems with its ballast and beam. And 
when people started loading out of the boat, it was already top heavy and people were standing along the top of the, the railings and such to look out and see the river and see the city. And they're all very excited, but because of the balance and beam being off and because the extra weight of the boats on top, it started to list to one side and it started to list a little bit. The crew opened up some of the ballast and tried to put some water under the hull to balance it out. And it didn't work. And within 12 to 15 minutes, the boat tipped to its side and sank in 20 feet of muddy Chicago River water to the bottom. Now, 20 feet of water isn't that deep, but it was deep enough. And many lives were lost. And you can go online and see some just unbelievably horrific pictures of what took place that morning and how devastating it was to so many people and the city itself. It, it remains, I believe, the largest loss of life in the Great Lakes area because the Chicago, is a tri- Chicago River is a tributary of Lake Michigan, so it's considered part of the, uh, the Great Lakes. So all of this happens 107 years ago, 1915. And growing up, I've heard about it. I read about it in the history books and such like that, but it didn't mean much to me at all. In 2004, many, many years later, I uh, came up with the idea of the Oprah Radio Network. I'd been on radio for quite a while at that time. I knew Oprah prior to uh, my time on radio. And when XM Sirius Radio gave Howard Stern like more money than God could print, I knew at some point they're coming for Oprah. So in 2004, myself and a buddy of mine named Abe Thompson and Ginny Weissman and Karen Dillon, we all went and met at Harpo. And Karen and Ginny knew the guy that was the president of Harpo. And I knew Oprah and Abe knew Oprah. So we had this meeting and the meeting was about getting radio for her set up at some point because it was, you know, it's going to happen. And in that meeting in 2004, they, they said, sure, we'll do something, but not yet. We got you know, we're TV people. We don't know what the deal is. So after that meeting, we went across the street, kitty corner to a building that was the soundstage for what at the time was the Comedy Central Network Chicago studio directly across Washington Street. Um, from the Harpo studio, the main building. And we had a small after meeting there and talked and okay, and this and that. So two years goes by and I find out that they've hired a fellow named John Guerin to be the general manager of what now is becoming Oprah Radio. So since I was there in the beginning and it was my idea to start with, not I'm not the only person to put this together, but I had the initial idea on paper to do this. Um, my friend Abe, who was at the first meeting, knew John. He called me. And he said, come on down, let's talk. So I come down to Chicago and I bring my brag book with all my, you know, how great people think I am on radio and blah, blah, blah. And John and I have lunch and I give him my brag book and he goes, I know who you are. I know what you've done. He goes, listen, do you want to see the studios we're building? I said, sure. Oddly enough, they go to the building that we had had our after meeting in two years earlier. They bought that building, the old Chicago uh, Comedy Central studio, and they were turning it into the radio studios and other offices. Well, that was interesting. But not, you know, it's not way out of whack, but it was, oh, that's interesting. They bought that. It's right across the street. So we go in there and the state-of-the-art stuff, of course. It's it's millions of dollars being put into this thing. And John said to me, listen, I know what you've accomplished on radio, but I cannot put you on the air. I need you to teach what you do to Dr. Oz and Gene Chatsky and Bob Green and Nate Berkus and all this crew. And, you know, we negotiated back and forth and I wasn't keen on the idea in the beginning because I've been on the air for so long and I didn't feel like holding hands with a bunch of, you know, 
radio wannabes, quite frankly. Now, Jean Chatsky was the exception. She's, we knew each other prior to this, and she's an excellent broadcaster, no matter what medium she's in. But the rest of them, their claim to fame was that they sat next to Oprah for seven minutes and people loved them. So you, trying to recreate that on radio is a daunting task. So initially I said, no, not interested. And then John took a piece of paper out, wrote a number down, goes, we'll pay you this. I said, okay, I'm interested. <laughs> Everyone's got a price. So eventually I came on board and, and became a producer for, for some of those folks and um, did my own show later in my tenure there. And I did some one minute things. And so you know, I, I kind of rode the wave and put my ego in my back pocket and became a coach for a while. But I got to tell you, there's a setup in everything we do. At least I feel that way. I think somewhere in all the, the travels that in our lives, there's a setup that's trying to teach us something or open us to something. And if we pay attention to it, we might come across it. We're good. Otherwise, it's like, well, why am I doing this? And what am I doing here? And those are good questions. Sometimes the answers come in the strangest of ways. So this would have been 2008. And I had a friend of mine, the late, great Richard Crow who was the first, quote, ghost hunter in America. He was an amazing guy, a theologian. Uh, He ran the um, haunted Chicago tours here in the city and really well-read, well-rounded guy. And, of course, everybody in the media knew him because of his tours and his background in Chicago, according to Richard and many others, is, you know, it's got its places where there's some strange activity going on. So when it was time to do a Halloween show, he was the guy that we brought on. So Gene Chatsky's in New York piped in and Richard didn't come to the studio. He did it from his home office. So he's on our phone line in and we're in this little edit suite. There's like four of them. So we're in edit one. It holds maybe five people. And this is specifically built for these. You know, these are remote interviews we're doing and this is why we were built for that. So you can record everything in there and then everybody bugs out and the editor can sit and clean it up. So we're doing this show with Richard and Gene's in New York and Richard's here in Chicago, as I mentioned. And he's talking about all the different things that have gone on, Al Capone and St. Valentine's Day Massacre and Clarence Darrow seen levitating across the Lincoln Park Lagoon. Most of this shit, quite frankly, I don't even care about nor do I believe. So he starts going on and on about Harpo, the main studio across the street, at one time was the mortuary for most, if not all, of the victims of the Eastland disaster. And I think I've probably heard that in the past, but it didn't stay in my brain. And he's going on about that. And I'm like, well, that's okay. That's across the street. Nothing happens here. This is away from that. So Jean's doing her thing from her end, and Rich is doing his thing, and they talk about all this stuff, and we're having fun with it. And uh, we finally say, thanks. That's, you know, we're done with the show, and that's it. We're going to take a break because we're going to take another show. And we let Richard go, and Jean's taking a break in New York, and there's myself, uh, my editor, Katie, uh, our engineer, Matt Sparky, and my legal person, Teresa, and myself. And we're sitting in here, and the door's closed. It's small. And we had a little back, back and forth talk, and all of a sudden, swear to Christ, through one of the speakers off to the side that's sitting on the shelf, this voice comes through. Now, in my mind, it was almost a female voice, but everybody else heard it a little different according to their own ears, I guess. And the voice clearly said, Niels Peterson will not be forgotten. And I said, what the, what? And we all heard it. And the voice said it again. 
Niels Peterson will not be forgotten. And I, I didn't even, we all heard it. This was not just me. Katie heard it. Teresa heard it. Matt heard it. And Gene heard it through the talk back that was open in New York. And then it's, it was just like this energy and then it was it. I mean, the hair of my neck went up, hair of my arms up right now. And, uh, now what? So I opened the door to let out whatever was in there and just this rush of energy. And we all stood there dumbfounded. What the F was that? So we composed ourselves. We didn't tell anybody right away. We just all kind of looked at each other and we resumed our second taping and that was it. I get back to my office. I call Richard Crow and I said, you're not going to F and believe what happened here. And I told him the whole thing, and he thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Well, if that happens again, call me. I'll come over. I don't want it to happen again, and I ain't calling you again. Not more than five minutes after I got off the phone, Richard, Matt comes walking into my office. He goes, you're not going to believe this. And he has the manifest of the passengers from the Eastland that perished. And whose name's on there? Niels Peterson. So we all sat with that for a while and just kind of talked about it. Word leaked out a little bit. None of us want, and myself included, wanted to go to edit one for a while. And whenever I found myself having to work a little late, look, I, I'm not scared of much. I mean, I don't think I do any open water diving with great white sharks with a cut in my leg, but it takes a lot to rattle me. And this rattled me. And I thought every time I worked late and, and I was the only one in there, I'm like, all the lights can stay on. Cause this is just was way over the top, even for some of the things that I'd experienced. So that was that, and I thought that was the end of it. And I started writing this book years later, almost 10 years later. Phenomenon, sacred moments, messages, memories, and other shit I can't explain. Because that's one very profound experience I had. There's been many more. This one obviously falls in line with this tragic anniversary tomorrow, July 24th. And so I'm writing this story about what happened. And I, and I reached back out. Now we're all in, you know, to some degree in different places in our lives. Matt's working, you know, Oprah Radio doesn't exist anymore. The building is, you know, I don't know what's there now. So all that's gone. But I reached out to everybody that was in the room. And my highly significant other, Teresa, is one of those people that was there. And we all remember it in our own way. We all heard what we heard. And it was a group experience, which I find just fascinating. So I'm writing this story and doing some digging on Niels Peterson. And come to find out that Niels Peterson and his wife and his little son were on board the ship that day. His wife survived. Niels, who was 46, drowned. And his little son, Royal, who was only four, drowned with his father. His wife would go on to uh, remarry. I think she moved to Cleveland or Cincinnati, somewhere in there. But she basically died of a broken heart when she was 32, 33 years old. And as I'm going through the archives and things like that, recounting this amazing experience and finding out more and more, I come to find out that, that uh, Niels Peterson and his son are buried in some place called Glen Oaks Cemetery or Oak Ridge. They're kind of like a joined place. And I'm like, well, where's that at? I mean... Maybe I should go check it out. Now, then, this is 10 years have gone on since the time of this experience to I'm writing this book and getting to this chapter. Where is this place? So I Google it. It's five minutes from my house, if that. I can walk 
and I did to the gravesite. And so you can kind of imagine my mindset when I, you know, have this experience, we recount this experience, it's confirmed that he was there and that of all the places to live and move from, I lived in Michigan, we moved, we lived in different places around this, you know, Chicagoland area, that it's walking distance out the front door. Kind of was the capstone for me. In the, uh, the book Phenomenon, if you have it or if you purchase it, you can, the best place to get it is at lulu.com because it's more author-friendly there. You can find it on Amazon, but lulu.com is a place to get it as well. Uh, I'm also, uh, it's audiobook. I read it as audiobook, so you can get that as well on Audible. But in the book part, in the print version, you'll see a picture. I took a picture of the, uh, their headstone. Uh, And there it is, you know, it shows their birth and death dates, their names are on there. And it's interestingly enough that this was going into a book. And if you look at the headstone from the side, you see that it's an open book. So I can't explain any of that. I don't know. I'm not related in any way, shape or form that I could come up with or find out to Niels Peterson. I don't know why that particular day that that's what took place in that little edit suite. I don't know what needs or doesn't need to be not forgotten about Niels Peterson, whose voice that was. I couldn't tell you any of that stuff. But what I can tell you is there's something for me. And it goes back to this thing that happened when I was 19 to be, and that's not the only one thing, but none of those people, Teresa, Matt, Jean, and Katie, they've not had any, to my knowledge, electrical you know, injuries that would heighten their awareness and senses. They heard it too. So was it part of me being there that, that prompted that? I have no idea. So when I went out there that first time and visited the gravesite, I was, it was fairly emotional for me. I started thinking about my own son, who's, you know, now in his thirties, uh, and all the time that I've had with him and all the time that these two didn't have. And I wondered over the years, how many people, if anybody had visited their gravesite, there's maybe nobody left. They're just you know, uh, one grave in in a a cemetery filled with hundreds of them. And I decided that if nothing else, I'm going to make sure he's not forgotten and his son's not forgotten. I will visit them. And I do quite often. Uh, I've been out there, you know, summer, fall, winter, spring. Uh, I, I went out and cleaned all the lichen off there and made sure it was clean and stuff like that. And I don't know why that I'm doing that, but I do know that I'm supposed to do that. And that's the only knowing that I need to have. So this episode contains no great lessons that I can tell. There's no great opinion on my end. And I try to do shows that have some bite to them where we look at things a little bit different. And maybe the takeaway here for me is that life can change in an instant. Here's all these people think they're going on a picnic. And with all the wrong conditions put in place, 844 of them died, 22 families wiped out. And knowing that life is like that, you know, it, it is not all predictable. It's not everything, how it shows up in a, you know, a, a drama or a sitcom in 30 minutes and it's all wrapped up and tied in a bow. Life's not like that. It's messy at times and very, very sad. So tomorrow, July 24th, will be the 107th anniversary of the sinking of the Eastland. And if it's within your mind to think about all those people that perished, uh, the families that were wiped out, uh, and how that changed in a ripple effect way so many other people's lives, mine included, uh, that might not be a bad thing. I think it's important to be remembered. And if nothing else, 
Niels Peterson in this episode and in my book will not be forgotten, nor will his son Royal. Until next time, be well, safe travels. Keep the faith. Adios.